Well, thank you for being here on this Lord's Day morning. Is this the last Sunday meeting of 2020? Uh, I think it is. God is so faithful, isn't he? All the time. You know, I wanted to tell you by way of introduction that Psalm 44 is a masterpiece in so many ways. You could say that about every one of the Psalms. They're a masterpiece. But this one is particularly heart-searching. God never sleeps, <clears throat> wrote the Scottish commentator Murdoch Campbell in his notes regarding the 44th Psalm. God never sleeps, he wrote, but sometimes it sure seems like he does. You may remember 1 Kings chapter 18, the prophet Elijah on Mount Carmel, he mockingly hypothesized that the gods of the Canaanites had failed to consume the offering that was on the altar because they were asleep. The psalmist of Israel, the sons of Korah, also imagined that God is asleep. Notice the 23rd verse of Psalm 44. He said, Awake, why are you sleeping, O Lord? Rouse yourself, do not reject us forever. The title of the message this morning is, Is God Asleep? Before you're too quick to answer that question, I want to remind you of Mark chapter number 4, verses 35 through 41. Is God asleep? It's kind of a loaded question, isn't it? I'm going to read this passage for you. You may consider writing it down in your notes for further reflection and meditation later after the sermon. But in Mark chapter 4, verses 34 through 41... The Bible says, on that day when evening had come, he said to them, talking about Jesus, let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took with them in the boat, just as he was, and the other boats were with him. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat, so that the boat was already filling. But he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace be still. And the wind ceased and there was a great calm. He said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and sea obey him? Is God asleep? Well, the immediate answer for that question is no, but in Mark chapter 4, he certainly was. And in the book of Genesis, during the creation account, the Bible said on the seventh day after creation, God rested. The psalmist is not altogether wrong when he asks the question or when he commands the Lord, awake, Lord, and save us. Let us never forget that it was the Lord Jesus Christ sleeping on a cushion amidst a terrible storm that caused such panic 
for his disciples. Also, it was the thought of God's sleeping, which was the occasion for the writing of the 44th Psalm. And in our day, when it seems as if God is not answering our prayers, we, like the psalmist and the disciples on the Sea of Galilee, we can become frightened and despairing. Have you ever felt as if God wasn't hearing your prayers? Perhaps you are like the Israelites in this psalm and you know you have done nothing that would warrant God turning a deaf ear to you, but yet it seems as if God is not there, God is not listening, it seems as if God is sleeping. Let us awaken to the reality of who God is and what He is doing in times when we feel as if He is sleeping. I'll repeat this introductory phrase, the thrust of our sermon is, have you ever felt as if God wasn't hearing your prayers? Perhaps you are like the Israelites in this psalm and you know you have done nothing that would make God turn a deaf ear to you, and yet it seems as if God is not there. It seems as if God is sleeping. Let us awaken to the reality of who God is and what he is doing in times when we feel as if he is sleeping. We are not given a historical context for the writing of the 44th Psalm. But apparently the Israelites had recently suffered a serious military defeat on the battlefield. Notice verse number 9 of Psalm 44. He said, but you have rejected us and disgraced us. You have not gone out with our armies. It was apparently a conflict, a war of some kind. And the Jews had, had suffered a serious setback, a loss, a defeat on the battlefield. And it's during times of our defeat at the hands of our enemies that we may feel as if our God is sleeping. I want to read to you one of the greatest Hebrew scholars of the Puritan age in England, J.J. Stuart Perron. He says, and I quote, the psalm opens with a glance at the past history of the nation and the acknowledgement that from the very first, every victory which they had won had been won not by their own strength, but by the immediate hand of God. This was, it may be said, the perpetual lesson of their history. They did not rise upon their Egyptian masters, but God bowed the heart of the monarch and the people by his signs and wonders till they thrust them out in haste. At the Red Sea, they did not turn to fight with the chariots and the horsemen of Pharaoh. They were but to stand still and see the victory of Yahweh. When they came to Canaan, their first exploit was not a feat of arms, for Jericho fell by a miracle. The Jewish host, with a better faith, believed that in every battle an invisible captain led them, and they knew that whenever they conquered their enemies, it was because an invisible arm gave them the victory, end quote. Perhaps you'll find no stronger, no more faithful synopsis of the great works of God in the nation of Israel in the past than the first eight verses of Psalm 44. They're put together beautifully. I have three points this morning. Three simple points. God's past deliverance in verses 1 through 8. The perplexing present 
in verses 9 through 25, and a redemptive hope in verses 22 through 26. That's God's past deliverance in verses 1 through 8. God's, or excuse me, the perplexing present in verses 9 through 25. And finally, a redemptive hope in verses 22 through 26. <clears throat> in Psalm 44, the psalmist is keenly aware that the many military victories in Israel's past were attributed to God alone. Now, if you study the historical books of the Old Testament, it's pretty clear that the Jews were outgunned and outnumbered often, matter of fact, every time, and God very often delivered a miraculous victory to them. I think of the story of Gideon and his uh, men and the story of the lamps and torches and so forth. I think of also some of David's conquests and obviously Joshua and Moses. And uh, as Mr. Perone so eloquently stated for us just a moment ago, most of all of Israel's military battles, the Jewish people knew beyond a shadow of a doubt that it was the Lord who had delivered them. And the psalmist actually affirms that uh, in these verses, I want you to notice verses 6 through 8. For not in my bow do I trust, nor can my sword save me, but you have saved us from our foes and have put to shame those who hate us. In God we have boasted continually, and we will give thanks to your name forever. Very powerful opening verses. <clears throat> the psalmist calls to remembrance the twofold past victory of Israel. Twofold past victories of Israel. First, in the distant past, and second, in the recent past. Notice with me verses 1 through 3. O oh God, we have heard with our ears, our fathers have told us what deeds you performed in their days, in the days of old. You with your own hand drove out the nations, but them you planted, you afflicted the peoples, but, but them, talking about Israel, you set free. For not by their own sword did they win the land, nor did their own arms save them, but your right hand and your arm and the light of your face, for you delighted in them. This is a very... Uh, keen and very concise description. It calls to remembrance both Moses and Joshua and their conquests as they're entering into the promised land. But what we need to understand and what is so important about this passage is that Israel, the writers of the Psalms, are convinced, they know, and their hearts are filled with faith regarding the past military victories of the nation of Israel. There's no wavering. There's no second guessing in the first eight verses of this psalm. And they are very powerful. Probably one of the best descriptions of God's past dealings and past works and victories which he gave Israel in the, all the psalms thus far, in fact. We really, as the church of God, we really have no equivalent direct equivalent to the past victories that God gave Israel because uh, they were so miraculous what God was doing in that time and uh, and it was such a uh, 
how shall we say, very unique point in history. But if I was to sort of make a equivalent um, or make a application to what God has done in recent times within the last 500 years for his church, I would point to the Protestant Reformation, uh, particularly the first uh, Great Awakening in the United States with Jonathan Edwards and Mr. George Whitfield and the Wesleyan revivals, John and Charles, the second and third Great Awakenings, particularly the third Great Awakening, uh, the Welsh revival of 1904, uh, some of these great displays of God's reviving grace where you had tens of thousands of people coming into the kingdom, getting saved and born again, joining churches and so on and so forth. And in our distant past, uh, as, as the church, we can look to these events, uh, these acts, these mighty works that God did. And very often when we look back and we read a history of what happened, it's very encouraging and strengthening our faith. But then notice in verses 6 through 8 what the psalmist does. Notice the, uh, the shift. No longer is it we, us, Verse 6, he said, in my bow, I, he said, for not in my bow do I trust, nor can my sword save me. It went from the plural, we and us, now to the singular. And so the psalmist recalls, based upon Israel's distant past victories, apparently the psalmist is now reflecting on some victory that God gave him personally and or uh, corporately victories that God had recently given the Jewish people uh, that would have been pertinent to this discussion of God's great delivering grace in the past of the nation of Israel. And so he calls to remembrance uh, distant past victories which God gave Israel and recent past victories that God gave Israel and he relates to them personally. Now to give it to you in layman's terms, I have it written here Essentially, this is what the psalmist is saying up to this point in verse 8 of Psalm 44. God, we know you worked to bring about victories in the distant past for our fathers and mothers in the faith. But you have also worked in our life recently, and I can personally testify to the victories that you have given, and therefore I am very thankful to you. So it wasn't just what God had done in the distant past. It was what God had done in the recent past for him personally. And you couldn't get any better. It was the psalmist looking back to what God did for the fathers, for the patriarchs. And then based upon that, not only had God worked in the life of the patriarchs to deliver victory, but God had worked in his or her own life to deliver great victories as well. And so again, uh, put together very beautifully in the first eight verses of this psalm. Now, here's where it begins to get very interesting because there's not just eight verses in Psalm 44. There's like 26 verses in Psalm 44. And the first eight verses, if you was to chop the psalm off at verse 8, it would be a victory hymn a sort of memorialized uh, victory song for what God had done in the life of Israel in the distant past and also what God was doing in the more recent past. But a shift occurs. I want you to notice with me verse 9. The Bible says, But you have rejected us and disgraced us and have not gone out with our armies. 
So here you have it. Now the psalm takes a very somber and mournful, sorrowful turn. And this is called an anticlimax. We've seen this before. And this is going to characterize the remainder of the psalm. This is what we need to be looking at in this portion of this psalm. The, by far, the longer portion of Psalm 44 is given to the psalmist basically accusing God that God did not give the nation of Israel victories on the battlefield. I'm not, that's not my word. I'm not making that up. That's actually here. We're going to discuss that uh, in a little bit more detail as we move on. The psalmist accuses God of many things. What I also want to note, something I mentioned last weekend, is that very often when we look back over our shoulder and analyze what God has done in the past, maybe in the churches, and also what God has done in the past, even in our own life, and we're thankful for both of those things, what begins to happen is now we start getting upset because God isn't working right now that way. Okay? That's what the psalmist is doing. This is a common experience for the people of God. This is, you know, uh, completely warranted to feel this way. Have you ever stopped to consider how God working mightily in the past is hindering your present faith? Because it does. We're going to talk about that a little bit more as we move on. This psalm presents us overall, on the whole, with a very disturbing truth. Here it is. God does not always choose to deliver and save His people from their enemies. And as my friend Dr. Parker always used to say, that's just life in the big city. Somebody says it's not fair. I know, tell it to Jesus. It wasn't fair for Him either. Somebody said, it just, ain't, it just ain't right what God's allowing happen to us. Tell that to Paul and to James and to John and to Peter, etc., etc., on down the line. Give you two examples. While God was actually on the planet Earth doing his ministry, healing the sick, raising the dead, preaching the gospel. Right underneath his nose, John the Baptist is captured, imprisoned, and murdered while Jesus is here. And Jesus did not stop it. Could he have stopped it? Absolutely he could have, but he didn't. And another example in more recent memory within the canon of the New Testament in the book of Acts, we learned that the apostle James was also murdered by Herod. And God chose to not stop that either. And it's a disturbing truth. It's an unsettling truth. It's an unfair truth. And the truth is, the reality is, is that God does not always choose to deliver and save his people from their enemies in this life. Which leads us to our next point, the perplexing present. The first eight verses are a magnificent, well-orated, well-constructed praise 
for the victories that God gave Israel in both the distant and recent past. But the remaining two-thirds of this great psalm deal with the puzzling and present circumstances which the psalmist finds himself and Israel in. It's a painful reality. Let's look at verses 9 and 10. But you have rejected us and disgraced us and have not gone out with our armies. You have made us turn back from the foe and those who hate us have gotten spoil. Let's keep reading. You, verse 11, have made us like sheep for slaughter and have scattered us among the nations. You have sold your people for a trifle, demanding no high price for them. You have made us the taunt of our neighbors and derision and scorn of those around us. Verse 14, you have made us a byword among the nations, a laughingstock among the peoples. All day long my disgrace is before me and my shame has covered my face at the sound of the taunter and reviler at the sight of the enemy and the avenger. You have done it, the psalmist said. He's accusing God. And he's absolutely right. God did allow it, didn't he? Is God sovereign? Sure. Did God choose to deliver the patriarchs in the distant past? Yeah, he certainly did. Did God choose to deliver the Israelite writer, the psalmist, in the recent past? Absolutely, he sure did. But he didn't choose to do that now. Why? Why, Lord, have you allowed it? First of all, don't be too quick to rush in when somebody talks to God like this because at least they believe that God is in control. It's not that the psalmist said, well, God didn't deliver us. Well, looks like he's not God. He didn't say, God didn't deliver us. I'm washing my hands of him. I'm going to go find me another God that will. No, he remains centered in God. He cries out to God. He accuses God. And does God rebuke the psalmist? Absolutely not. Do we talk to God like this? You know, God wants us to talk to Him like this. Because at least then we're talking to Him. It's better to talk to God like this than to not talk to Him at all. At least this man, whoever the psalmist, the sons of Korah, at least they have a relationship with the Lord, one close enough to where they say, you, you, as a man talks to his friend or his foe. What strong language. You have made us like sheep for slaughter. God, you have done this to us. It's a painful reality, isn't it? You say, well, the Israelites, they must have did something wrong. Right? That's the natural inclination that we have, and that would be the right thing to suggest, actually. And they may have done something wrong except for verses 17 and 18. Look at it. All this has come upon us though we have not forgotten you. And we have not been false to your covenant. Our heart was not turned back nor have our steps departed from your way. You've done this to us Lord and we were doing everything right. 
Well, they must have had some sins of omission or sins of commission, brother. They just need to get right with God. They were right with God and they lost. Wow. You say, well, they must have committed a sin. Maybe this was the era of the Babylonian captivity where they were offering their sons and daughters as burnt sacrifices to Moloch and Baal. Maybe there was some sin. Maybe they had allowed idolatry into their lives and into their hearts and into their nation. Well, look, you would probably be right to suggest such a thing, except for verses 20 and 21 tell you that they didn't. Look at it. If we had forgotten the name of our God or spread out our hands to a foreign God, would not God discover this? For he knows the secrets of the heart. They're saying if there's anybody in our camp like Achan and Joshua, remember him? He had stolen something he wasn't supposed to and God gave the defeat to the Israelites because there was sin in the camp. But in this instance, not only were they doing everything right, but they make the bold proclamation that they had no sin. He specifically says that he had done nothing, no sinful acts to incur a reason for the defeat they experienced at the hand of their enemies, yet they were defeated anyway. No wrongdoing, no sin, and they lost. Did it ever occur to you? Let me ask you this question. What in the world do you do when you do everything right and nothing wrong and you still suffer defeat? Well, I thought if I did all the right stuff and did not, didn't do this and did do that and studied my Bible and prayed every day, I'm going to grow, grow, grow. I don't think so. That's not the way it works. And this is the disturbing question that this psalm presents to us. What do you do when you've done everything right and nothing wrong and you still lose? Is that even possible? Yes, it is, America. Yes, it is. Christians, yes. Doing everything right in the church and yet defeated. Doing everything right by your children and yet defeated. Doing everything right by your spouse and yet defeated. Doing everything right at your job and yet defeated. I knew a man one time, I'll not tell you where the job was. He had been there for a number of years, decades, and he was known as being a man who was 15 minutes early. All the time. And this is one of these guys, you know, I had a Bible college teacher one time. He said, if you ain't 15 minutes early, you're late. And this, this was a 15 minutes early kind of guy. He was 15 minutes early to work. Was the first guy sitting in the lunchroom, ready to punch the clock. Was dressed, was ready to go all the time. Had been at this job 20, 30 years. And uh, he was so good, in fact, that the company didn't want to have to pay him anymore. And they started letting the temp services in. And they cut this fellow loose after 25 years of faithful working every single day. Being early, doing what he was supposed to do, showing up on time, 
We live in a culture where people don't want to work anymore, where they want everything handed to them. And here you have a man who's doing what he's supposed to be doing, giving it his best every day, showing up early, volunteering for overtime. His supervisors just absolutely love him. He's climbing the ladder. He's doing what he was supposed to do, but the company didn't want to have to pay him anymore. They could hire temporaries to come in there and do the same job for a third of the price. So they cut him loose like a bad habit, and he got persecuted for doing what was right, for working hard. He was defeated, yet he lost. And this happens, doesn't it? How do you solve, how do you uh, answer the problem of suffering? Suffering in Psalm 44 when you're doing everything right and not doing anything wrong. What is this? Why is this? What have I done? Nothing. This psalm was so profound that St. Paul quotes from it. Romans chapter 8. I'll read it for you. Romans 8, 35-37. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, quote, For your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. He's quoting directly from the 44th Psalm. Twice over, look at the 22nd verse. Awake, why are you sleeping, O Lord? Rouse yourself. Do not reject us forever. Verse 21, for yet for your sake, I'm so sorry, 22, yet for your sake we are killed all the day long. We're regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. This is the second time in this Psalm that this phrase has occurred. We are like sheep to be slaughtered. What does this mean? Why are we suffering even though we're doing nothing wrong and everything right? What's wrong with God? Is he asleep? Wake him up. Doesn't he know what we're going through? Master, carest thou not? <laughs> we're drowning. We're dying. We're being defeated. We've done everything you told us to do and nothing you told us not to do. And we're being defeated terribly. Here it is. The people of God suffer innocently. Innocent suffering. Somebody said, I don't like that. Doesn't matter what you like. It's the facts. Isn't it? You know what? I didn't like this. See, because I know what it's like to suffer for doing wrong. And I thought, boy, here we go. Finally, I'm going to be a Christian. I'm going to be a preacher. I'm going to be a pastor. Everybody's going to be happy. <laughs> you know, it's not the way it works. I'm finally going to change my life around. God's finally changed my life. No longer am I going to be a scourge to society. I'm going to make a difference. We'll preach the gospel. Life is going to be good. Yeah. 
<laughs> the people of God suffer innocently. It's one thing to suffer because you're bad. It's expected, isn't it? But what about when you suffer for doing good? See, this is what Paul's putting his finger on. The worst kind of suffering is when we suffer for righteousness. Because it's unexpected. Because it's unfair. Because it's not right. After all, we live in such a merit-based culture, don't we? I mean, it's the founding principles of our nation. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. If you show up every day, you work hard, you, you know, you're the last guy off, out of the shop, you're the first guy there. You're smart, you invest your money wisely, you put your money here, you put it there. It gains interest. You work hard. Do what you're supposed to do. Don't do what you're not supposed to do. You climb the corporate ladder. We live in a merit-based culture. The problem is that's not how the Christian life works. In fact, the better you are in Christ, the more like Jesus you are, the more you shall suffer. Suffering is your reward. Christ, Paul, and the early Christians served God faithfully, yet they faced death all the day long because of just that, because of serving God faithfully. It would be easy to solve the problem of suffering in Psalm 44 by saying that they were suffering for their sins. The problem is, that's not true. They didn't have any sin. Not in the sense that there was some sin that would have caused God to turn a deaf ear to them. Very specific about that. And in fact, you know that's true because Paul takes up this same theme. Innocent suffering in Romans 8 and unpacks it fuller for us. This is a rare instance. You have to be very careful preaching from the Old Testament. Because you can get all sideways and turned around, you know. That's why so little preaching from the Old Testament goes on. What's clear and what's good in this passage at least is that you have a direct quotation by the Apostle from the 44th Psalm. A redemptive hope. Verses 20 through 26. In the simplest terms, in a nutshell, the psalmist says, Lord, you helped us in the past. We're asking you to help us right now. But you are not helping us right now. Even though we have done nothing to keep you from helping us, so therefore, help us. That's the message of this psalm. Pretty simple, isn't it? There are at least two closing points in this psalm with which help us to answer the problem of suffering. Number one. I want to show you something, something wonderful. Verse number 22, Yet for your sake we are killed all the day long, counted as sheep for the slaughter. For whose sake is it? 
It's for God's sake. It's for Christ's sake. When you suffer innocently and you are genuinely innocent, you've done nothing wrong, you've done everything right, and you still suffer, you are suffering for God. You are suffering for the glory of God. You are no more like Christ than when you suffer for righteousness sake. Somebody says, I want to be more like Jesus. Good! We're going to suffer for doing right and not doing wrong. Yeah! Woo! Now, that's not how it works, is it? I'll wake you up this morning. What a pertinent sermon. Everybody's just standing in line to suffer and be persecuted for righteousness' sake, for Christ's sake, and for God's sake, aren't they? They're just lined up down the alleyway. They can't wait to get in here to hear about it, can they? I don't think so. It's antithetical to everything that we stand for as human beings, especially as Americans. I can, because I'm an American. Well, are you a Christian? Are you like Christ? Because Christ suffers for righteousness' sake. So does Paul. We're like God. We're like Christ. We suffer for God and we suffer for Christ. Matthew 5, 10 through 11. Blessed are you when men shall revile you and persecute you for my name's sake. For so persecuted the prophets which were before you. Great is your reward in heaven. John 15, verse 20, No servant is greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. What makes you think that you're better than the holiest man who's ever lived? If they couldn't get along with him and they didn't like him, what makes you think they're going to like you? Like us? Well, I don't know. I shouldn't have to suffer like Jesus did. Oh, well, tell him that. I'm doing everything right, not doing anything wrong. So did he. Yeah, he suffered, didn't he? Greatly, immensely. So did Paul. Firstly, it's for your sake that we suffer in the psalm. But then secondly, verse 26, rise up, come to our help, redeem us for the sake of your steadfast love. It's for the sake of God's steadfast love. It's for God's own sake and it's for the sake of his steadfast love that we suffer. What does this mean? When the people of God suffer for righteousness, we must remember our final deliverance will also be for the sake of God's steadfast love. In other words, God's gracious covenant will have the final word in our destiny and not the defeats which we face at the hands of our great enemies. The love of God for us infinitely outweighs any defeats we receive in this present evil life. No enemy, however great, can separate us from God's love. Listen to Paul's words in Romans chapter 8, verses 18, and then 38 and 39. He said, I consider that our present sufferings are not worthy comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. Verse 38. 
For I am convinced also that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. The love of God will infinitely outweigh our defeats at the hands of our enemies. Who needs to awaken in Psalm 44? Is it God? It's a good question. I want to show you something. Perhaps the most perplexing and paradoxical thing about all this is that God says it is slaughtered sheep who will conquer the world. How is that even possible? Slaughtered sheep are going to conquer the world? Have you ever seen a pathetic little butchered lamb? He's not whooping anything. And yet, that's who God says will conquer the world. Isn't it wonderful? It's a paradox. It doesn't make sense. It's seemingly contradictory. How is Jesus both a lion and a lamb? You ever considered that? The Bible called him a lion in Revelation, also called him a lamb. This is impossible. And yet with God, all things are possible. Slaughtered sheep will conquer because God is actually in control of all human history, bringing his sovereign will to pass. His said steadfast love is unfailing, and God himself is the only one who has the final say-so in what happens to you and I. I said, I don't like being slaughtered. Well, you might not be one of his sheep then. Probably a pretty good thing to infer. Who needs to wake up in Psalm 44? Is it God? No, it's us. What do we need to awaken to? The fact that no matter what happens to us, God has the final word. If you are a member of God's covenant community and you have been brought in by the blood of the Lamb, God's has said for you will have the final and eternal word, God controls your destiny, not your enemies. Let them kill you. Who cares? You get to go be with the Lord. Yeah, amen is right. Don't do me a favor, by the way. <laughs> yeah, think about it. One day, folks, your trek, your pilgrimage, your journey will be over. The suffering of this present life is nothing to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. No crying, no pain, and whatever tears there are, God will wipe them away himself. The new Jerusalem will come down from the heavens, and Jesus Christ himself will sit on the throne and rule the world in righteousness, and you shall judge angels. You are going to judge angels. Did you know that? It was angels that judged you in the beginning, didn't they? A fallen angel, an evil angel, a wicked angel. 
brought judgment and justice on you. And what God does is he flips the script on them. And Paul says, we're going to sit in judgment over the angels. Your destiny is to judge the angels. Think about that. Your destiny is to rule with Christ as a joint heir with God eternally. It ain't God that needs to be awakened in Psalm 44. It's the church. We are the ones whom God is awakening to his omnipotent and sovereign power over all things. And he is calling us to trust him for the greater reality of his kingdom unfolding before our eyes, whether we can see it or not. 